that. Hello and welcome to Museum of Literature Ireland, Molly, and this special arena to launch the latest edition of Winter Papers. Yes, indeed, here we are in my hands. I have a freshly minted copy of Winter, Winter Papers 8 with its vivid apple green thread-sewn cloth-covered hardback and its gold-embossed illustration of a wise owl staring straight at me. Inside, of course, wisdom of a different kind across essays, short stories, poetry, photographs, visual arts, along with craft interviews and in-conversations pieces on writing, film, theatre, photography and music. From new and established writers this evening, we have four of those writers here, here with us in Molly, author of the novels Solace and Tender, teacher Denuai Minuth, and recently returned from the US after a 17-year sojourn stateside Belinda McKeown, poetry editor at Banshee, author of the collections Liffey Swim, The Quick, Pit Lullabies, librettist for operas including Paper Bowl, Ghost Apples and The Wanderer, essayist and regular contributor to this programme, Jessica Trainer, Brian Layden, novelist, short story writer, editor and publisher with Lepus Print. Earlier this year, uh, my name suspended in the air, Leland Bardwell at 100, was published by Lepus Print to celebrate her centenary, and photographer and Croatian native Dragana Jurisic, whose books include the internationally acclaimed You, The Lost Country and Museum, a collaboration with the poet Paula Meehan. Please welcome them all here this evening. We also have some wonderful live music uh, for you later from Anna Mika. I'll share that with you later in the programme. And joining us remotely from Ballinafad in County Sligo, where I believe the sun is splitting the rocks, is, the, is, is Kevin Barry. You're not with us tonight, Kevin, in person no. at any rate. Yeah, I'm afraid it's the old COVID finally caught up with us, Sean, at the weekend. The, uh, the co-editor, Olivia Smith, and I have been testing positive. From since the weekend. We're grand, like, Liv is a bit spluttery. I, I have no symptoms at all, even though I'm trying to talk myself into them all week. But um, <laughs> but unfortunately, our, our first launch event in Dublin in three years, we have to kind of wave, like the last I man know. left on Zoom, you know? <laughs> yes, but we, we have you now. People at, people at home won't see this, but we, we have you on screen in front of us here, and you're going to be with us for the entire programme, so you, you'll be able to dip in and out. And I mean, I, I can't believe, Kevin, that this is issue number eight that we are launching and celebrating this evening. Uh, we were both much, much younger way back then, what? Yeah, we, 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 we were um, not getting any younger, but just arguably better looking. That's the only thing you can say for us. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know it just it just flies by, and it, we, we can't believe actually the last uh, in-person launch we had was in uh, in 2019 uh, with Arena again in in in, in Dublin. So uh, we were really looking forward to a night on the tiles. Mm. With this. Uh, you'll you'll have to step in in our place for I'll one more. Try, I'll try my very best. How would you um, characterise issue eight of the magazine? I mean, it, it's it's a well-worn, I presume, at this stage for yourself and Olivia. You know the kind of the, the rhythm of getting the edition together, but does I presume each edition has its own character. What is issue eight? What is its character? Well, it, the character every year, I think, is very much dictated by what comes in and the submissions and in the pieces that we commission, you know? And every year there's there's very clearly a sense of different pieces talking to each other and certain moods um, asserting themselves. Um, and I've noticed this year, even though we're, we're kind of out of the, of the kind of um, 
the the kind of the the emergency end of the pandemic it's 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 been most evident i think this year in people's um contributions um there's quite a i i found quite a quite a somber note across, mm. across the submissions quite a searching note as if you know artists and writers are kind of getting back into the kind of something like the swim of their of their normal uh, practice and lives but the sense that perspectives have really shifted because of the weirdness and, and sort of unsettling effects of the of the last few years you know so in some ways you're saying that winter papers eight not showing many symptoms but probably testing positive for covid itself is it <laughs> i think still yeah i think it, i think it's still it's it's still sort of erring towards that but it's um i must say one of the great things about doing the 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 pandemic and keeping it going during the or doing the journal during the pandemic has been um just the inspiring way of seeing writers and artists turning very much to the desk you know and in times of trouble with the sense that it's the, it's the work that keeps us going mm. um it's the work is the, is what we have and um and it's it's it, it's it's sort of just about fallen into enough of a perspective now, I think that you're starting to see the effects of the last few years very much on the work itself, coming into stories and essays and into conversation, of course, as people discuss what, what's been happening and what's coming next. Yeah, well, stay with us, Kevin. I know you're going to be there for, for the hour with us and uh, we certainly will come back to you. And talking, we'll talk specifically about your own piece in Winter Papers 8 as well. But I saw Belinda McKeown as Kevin was talking there, particularly around uh, writers turning to the desk. I saw a big nod of agreement. Yeah, that was a big nod of agreement because for me, um, hearing from Kevin and Liv at the beginning of the year um, with the with the um, suggestion that I might, with the, with the question of whether I had something that I might uh, write for them or had an idea that I'd want to work on for Winter Papers, um, that came just at the point where I had, my husband and I had decided that we were going to move back to Ireland after 17 years in the US, which is sort of that week where we sort of, you know, said, okay, it's happening. And the first, when I got that email from Kevin and Liv, the first thing I thought was, no, uh, no, I'm not going to have time, to, don't be ridiculous, I'm not going to have time to write, to write <laughs> stories. Yeah. And then the next thing I thought was, no, no, actually, that's exactly what I need to do. Um, and I did have this story, Diurnals. It, it had been on the back burner for probably two... It was pre-pandemic, definitely. Mm. Two, three years at that point. And so it started sort of saying, finish me, finish me. Well, I, I mean, I'm kind of thinking about the logistics. The logistics of moving house, you know, when you're moving a couple of blocks away <laughs> is one thing. The logistics of moving house, city and country. And, you know, we're not talking about, well, you can put them in the back of a car and off you go. That, that, there, was, there was a lot to be done there. Yeah. How did the writing get done in the midst of all of that? Surprisingly, um, you know, it became, the, it became the rock. It became the, this, mm. the one thing that I could actually um, turn to. And, you know, it was, it was steady. Um, everything else, nothing else was steady. Um, uh, the yeah the move I mean moving is an upheaval for anybody I mean and lots of people have done an international move um, probably better than I have you know with with uh, mm. less emotional uh, upheaval um, our furniture has just arrived finally and all the chairs are broken you know it's yeah. it's terrible yeah. um, but but no it, turning what Kevin said about turning to the desk it's, it's exactly what it felt like it's just sort of um, being able to go back to something that for a long time had been resisting me, I mean the story, mm. and then finally finding that um, it was just easier than packing 
ceramics, basically. <laughs> we'll come back to the specifics of the story at the moment, but in this part of the programme as well, we're also talking to Dragana Djuricic. You're no stranger to the move from one country to another, um, Dragana. You might give us a little bit of, I was, we were talking about this before we came to her, about the history of your move from Croatia to Ireland and the very interesting timing of it. Yes, well, I moved here in 99, but uh, you were asking me how long was the war uh, in former Yugoslavia, and I said from 91 to 99, so I waited until the end, you know, <laughs> couldn't. Uh, I think it's very difficult to move in a situation when you're in the midst of a conflict. It's just impossible for me to leave my family at that time, so I had to wait until the end, but also... Uh, talking about the pandemic and how the, um, the works are coming out just now, and I, I believe they're going to come more in the future. Uh, I can see that also in a parallel during the war in ex-Yugoslavia, artists didn't really talk about it or made the work until much later. It's just, uh, it's. Too, I mean, I have made two bodies of work during the pandemic, but I can't actually look at them yet. So... Hmm. Um, Eventually, I will come back there. But uh, and in terms of the piece that you have in in uh, the Winter Papers, it it's a, it's an essay and a set of uh, a set of photographs. Because essentially, your major trade, I suppose, is in photography. Yes, but I think when uh, Kevin contacted me and Olivia, uh, they um, probably wanted to commission me for photography, but I just kind of slid in the text as well, and I think they were too polite <laughs> to refuse. <laughs> Is that the way you are as an editor, Kevin? A nice, polite guy who doesn't go ruffling feathers, telling them, Shh, tidy that up, and I don't want that. Oh, no, the, the, the images, the photographs came in from Dragana, and they were fantastic, but the, the, the text added a complete, um, a separate dimension to them, really, and, and, and it was fantastic to get it. Yeah, yeah, and indeed your own piece in the book as well, Kevin, has uh, text and photographs. And we'll come back again, we'll come back to the specifics of, of the particular pieces in a minute. But I wonder to what extent, do you think the pandemic informed what you, the, the pictures that you shared with us in Winter Papers 8, uh, Dragana? Um, mm, well, I was actually, I spent a lot of pandemic editing the book that is coming out next month. <laughs> and um, there were sections of that book that I really wanted to show somewhere, but that didn't in the end belong. So uh, Rose Church came from the kind of rough edit of the book, but then I, you know, I, I finished it basically mm. later on for the... So was Rose Church was one of the things, you had to kill one of your babies and I, you, instead of killing it, you just gave I it just a new home? I just couldn't kill it completely. <laughs> yeah. I had to move it to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to and, adopt it. Yeah. And you, you basically, you head back home with these pictures, back to your aunt. Yes, so the, um, the work is really about my, my aunt who was a spy in Paris during the Cold War, uh, she worked for the Yugoslav government, not uh, voluntarily spy at the beginning, but she becomes a part of the system. It's not a really heroine, it's a kind of, um, her character is uh, very complex. And the book that is coming out in December called Her Own deals with that story. And um, Rose Church is my other aunt who was uh, her best friend. 
So one of the women decided to leave uh, Yugoslavia in 1950s and moved to Paris and the other one stayed and it's these parallel lives. Mm. So you, the, yeah. the one we get in, in Winter Papers 8 is, is the aunt who stayed, stayed yeah. uh, uh, who didn't work for the government. But your lady, um, Belinda McKeown, in your story in Diurnals, did work for the government. I, I, guess, <laughs> well, I guess if you give us a reading from it, we get a sense of... Working for the government is a very interesting term for, the, for what this woman did. Are you going to read that section? Yeah, yeah. I'll read a section just to give a, 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 br a brief sense of, of context beforehand. Dell is the character, and she's returning to education after years as a, as a PR guru, as a spin doctor. Uh, she's returning, sort of rebranding herself and changing her life. She's decided to do a course in environmental sustainability. Um, but her husband has a different name for it. <laughs> there's a bit of, there's a little bit of boldness. Of language. A little yep. bit of language towards the end. Lots of language in the preceding bits, but a bit of bad language towards the end. Sustainmental environability, which is what her husband calls it, was a new thing for Dell. For most of her career, she'd been in PR, performing dermabrasion on the images of politicians who only despised each other all the more intensely once she had drilled them in the vocabulary and the mannerisms with which to fake collegiality and an openness to working across party lines. Dell's firm had had the edge in Dublin because Dell had, in the late 90s, understood that the coming generation of Irish politicians would want to be seen differently to the crooks from which they would inherit their positions. Not that they would not also be crooks or deteriorate into crooks in their own spineless ways, but that they would have come up watching the West Wing, daydreaming about the future speeches they would give, the Ralph Lauren suits they would wear, the eloquence and the gravity of their messaging, the walk and talk in the corridors of the Doyle as they grew flattering public nicknames and made their way to the cover of the Irish Times magazine, or for the especially self-aggrandizing dreamers of whom there were not a small number, the magazine that came with The Observer, even The New York Times, over a headline drawling, the modernists meet the young Irish politicians changing everything. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Belinda McKeown reading from Diurnals. And it's one of, the, one of the pieces in the new Winter Papers 8, which we're launching this evening on Arena as, uh, in a live broadcast from uh, Museum of Literature Ireland. You wanted to have a go at everybody there, I think, Belinda, did you really? Yeah, I just noticed that I didn't give you the yes, language. You, you, Maybe I should go back. No, no uh, you scrammed. <laughs> I'm quite happy that we didn't get it. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's, that's been her career in the past, and now she's, um, uh, she wants to uh, save the world in a way. Um, mm. And so the story, the story came about, or began, when I, um, years and years ago, I was, I'm from County Longford, and I was home on holiday at one point and um, saw the centre parks uh, being built or the, the outside of the, that spade, that um, holiday resort in County Longford um, called Centre Parks. On the, on the gate of the hotel next door was a handwritten sign that said builders rates. And I just thought, what, what does that mean? And it was just one of those tiny things that you see and it just sort of plants a seed, you know, mm. it doesn't even plant a seed, it just stays with you without you realising it. And what I started to think about was a person coming to that hotel, you know, a person who wasn't a builder, just wanted to stay in the hotel and finds themselves in this, um, you know, uh, pa purported paradise mm. under construction. It's, it's no longer that kind of holiday resort. It's actually um, uh, a park for um, ATV vehicles in a former mining territory, but that's the way it changed yeah. over, the, over the course of, of, this, of the work over years, really. But uh, uh, what struck me in one of the things, and particularly linking in with, with Dragon's work as well, is this idea that in Dell we have a woman who, in that early part of her career, the section that you've just given us a sense of there, was obsessed with image and the outside and, you know, 
as you, as you as you put it, you know, derma brazing the 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 politicians cleaning them up quite quite a bit, and yet it seems now that she is is she looking for some kind of authenticity, and is it a mm-hmm. difficult trip for her? Yeah, she's she is genuinely looking for authenticity, but what she's finding is that the you know the language of a, like a course in sustainable environmentability in a, in a for-profit college is just as much that language is just as coded as the language of of PR. In, you know, she's sort of yeah. the re, the assignment that she's been given is about a fictional species, which is where the title comes from. It's a diurnal species called the striped walu, which looks sort of like a zebra cross with an anteater that it inhabits a place called Frazyland, and the students are being asked to work out a, a plan for its. Um, it's non-extinction, essentially, and so she's sort of mm. faced with this assignment, which is impossible. And it's not until she kind of accepts that, yes, it is impossible, that's the whole part of that's the whole point, that she can actually complete the assignment. So the sort of, um, you know, agreed-upon uh, fictions of um, living in this world where we're all conscious of it falling, yeah. falling apart around us. Yeah, the agreed-upon fictions are quite interesting in terms of your piece as well, Dragon, when we think of, isn't it the market that... that you, you visited, you visited the, the... You went back to, to Belgrade, and that's kind of where this essay starts with mm-hmm. Rose Church. Who were the images that were around the particular market? Images of what men? Yes, yeah, so uh, I was going to the Rose Church where my aunt dragged me every time I went to Belgrade since I was a child. And on the way to the church, you pass through the market stalls that sell kind of national produce, but also produce of nationalism. So, you know, the honey sold with the pictures of war criminals and uh, Radovan Karadzic, Slobodan Milosevic. And then um, I just found I had a little interaction with one of the sellers who was selling like a pork lard crisps. And it was next to a picture of Radovan Karadzic, who was only, uh, I think, a year before that, found to be living in plain sight in Belgrade. Mm. But now, from a war criminal, he has uh, disguised himself into a, a, a healer um, uh, and a kind of a ma- medicine man, a shaman who had a long hair and a beard and a top knot. And uh, I just thought how ridiculous this idea of murderous healer is, you know, because um, people actually believed in his powers. They would say that when he would wave his hand over the um, sperm with low mobility, that the things would start frantically moving. And <laughs> sure, I kind of sure thought they like that they, they were just like, covering for their life. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> moving, moving yeah. to get out of the way. However, so you described that type of image to us, but then you give us other images. And we're going to tweet some of these images as we go. I hope we can at RTA Arena for people Mm -hmm. at home. Uh, For those sitting here with me in Mali, I'm going to hold up this picture. I mean, I don't think you can get anything more authentic. It's a picture of, I presume this is your aunt at the time of the writing of, and and the the, the get putting together of this, Dragana. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, that's the aunt that stayed, Aunt Milanka, and... uh, This is the non-spy. Yeah. But, you know, she, is, uh, she could have probably done the job as well. You know, she's <laughs> unbreakable. And I used to be sent to her when I was a child because I didn't really eat a lot. I wish I had that problem now, but no, it's okay. Uh, so she would, my mom would send me for fattening uh, to this aunt. Uh, and, um, yeah, she was extremely strict. So we had this kind of love, 
hate relationship that grew into pure love mm. in the end. But, uh, you know, I find quite interesting also uh, with the past of ex-Yugoslavia, especially kind of Serbian narratives, you know, even my, fa my family who lived there, the, the kind of... Uh, this kind of parallel universe they lived in, basically believing in some kind of grand yeah. conspiracy theories, and including herself as well. So. And I, I'll show another picture here as well, which is of a, a much younger woman holding holding a cat. Um, I'm, I'm holding that up there. Very different image. Explain what we're looking at there at RTE Arena, if you want to see that picture at uh, it's, home. It's actually a picture of myself with, uh, with the cat. But uh, it's kind of a play on the image that comes before that, and that's of my spy aunt uh, holding a, a rose, and then in her lap is um, kind of a screaming bear. Uh, and it's a self-portrait I found when I found her archival images. So it was a kind of play yes. on, uh, because the book and the work that I'm uh, making is about three women, my aunt and myself, and. Uh, Alan Kunu de la Seine, a known woman of the Seine, um, who was this beautiful young uh, woman who, urban legend goes, drowned in Seine in the late 19th century. And then when she was fished out, the pathologist in mortuary in Notre Dame found her so beautiful that he made the death cast of her face. Yeah, and we see that, we yeah. see a picture of a death cast in here as well. But what, ex what I, find, I find extraordinary, if I had to look at the picture, the first picture of the rope with the woman holding the rose, and the second picture of the woman holding the cat. I know which one I would say was the spy. <laughs> <laughs> Quite definitely, the James Bond cat holder yes. is, is the spy in my book. Just before we finish with with Dragon and and Belinda, Belinda, I also uh, we we've mentioned that you might choose one other piece in the collection that kind of stood out for you. What did you choose, and why did it stand out for you? Oh yeah, I chose um, Sundays with Sam, which is a, sh a short story by Rosalind McDonough. Rosalind McDonough is a is a playwright and essayist. She published a book of essays last year. So when I started reading this story, I, was, I actually thought I was reading an essay at first, you know, the, the, the first person, the, the mm. voice, sorry, of the narrator um, is, is so compelling in terms, it's the story of uh, two people, well, actually it's the story of four people, but it's this, particularly the story of two men in, um, who meet in uh, Birmingham in, in 1970s, and it's fragmented, it's told in a, in a number of uh, fragments. And Sundays with Sam refers to the time that they get to have together. Mm. Um, the narrator is a member of the traveling community. Sam is an immigrant from Mauritius, a black man in London in the 1970s. And it's, it's just, it's really beautiful. Um, the, it's one of those stories where the, the small details that the author chooses yeah. to bring out are just really memorable. And she, she twists it with a tiny detail that mm -hmm. just kind of slips in and it's quite, quite beautifully done. And uh, you chose, uh, in, in those terms, Dragana, you chose Babel or Babel, Babel by Philip O'Kelly, which is an essay immediately afterwards. And Lynx mentions, in fact, the Bosnian War within it. Yeah, but I think uh, it was very difficult to choose favourite uh, because there were so many great works in the winter papers. But I guess at the time I was reading it, it was the one that I resonated the most. And, you know, I can smell it and, and I can feel the cold. Yeah, because he's, yeah. he's talking about yeah. a train journey across Europe and which would have yeah. included areas in and yes. around where you, you came from. Come from, yes. Yeah, so it was, maybe I was feeling particularly nostalgic, but it is a brilliant uh, piece of writing and I love how he traverses from, 
you know, he starts with literature and then ends in war and then comes to love and uh, impending fatherhood and mm. then circles again or back to literature. So I like that kind of covering yeah. different territories. Well, uh, for, the, for the time being, Belinda McKeown and Dragana Jurisic, thank you very much. And now to some live music. The last time we spoke to Wickler singer-songwriter Anna Mika was in June 2019. She had just released her hugely well-received debut album, Idle Mind. The follow-up to that album arrived last Friday. It's called Theatre, and once again, the critical reaction has been very positive. What I remember most, Anna, about the last time we spoke was you had been travelling all over the place. Um, you had been to uh, you'd been to, to Bulgaria, you'd been to Hungary, you'd been to Romania, you'd been to New Zealand, and you travelled all over Eastern Europe. And that had fed into the first album. What has fed into the second album? Were you staying at home all the time? <laughs> I was doing a lot of that, but um, no. This this album that I released on Friday, called Theatre. Uh, definitely is inspired by travels uh, when I was younger. So yeah, I lived in New Zealand when I was young and I've also done a lot of cycling. Uh, so a lot of that mm. is uh, in this album. And, and well. specifically in the song that we're about to hear, what are we getting? Uh, this is a song called Mannequin. Um, this one is partly inspired by the poem called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. Um, in fact, I borrowed a line, the very first line of this song, is a repeating line in that poem. All right, well, let us hear then, Mannequin. Did I do it Anamika there with a song called Mannequin and playing alongside Anna was saxophone player Ryan Hargadon. We'll be back with more from Molly and Winter Papers 8 after this break. And welcome back to Molly and this launch of Winter Papers 8, an arena special. And yes, uh, great to be back with you, um, and I'm wonderful to hear from uh, Belinda McKeown and uh, uh, Dragana Jurisic before the break, and indeed Anna Mika, who we will be hearing more from before the end of the programme as well, really looking to forward to hearing a second song, Anna. But with me on a stage now, if we can call our little spot here a stage, Brian Layden, novelist, short story writer, editor and publisher with Lepus Press. Uh, Brian's contribution to this year's Winter Papers is The Heron and the Hare, a piece about his friendship with the writers Leland Barwell and Dermot Healy and how they were at home in an inhospitable landscape in North Sligo. Whose words are they, inhospitable landscape in North Sligo? Kevin Barry, did you approve those? 
I would just say uh, you're trying to step off and uh, taking any responsibility for allowing the words inhospitable landscape of North Sligo. Um, does that occur in, in winter papers yet, or is that just an arena phrase? That's entirely on Mr. Leighton's head. You will have to answer for it in a moment, Brian. And uh, also with us is Jessica Trainer. Uh, Jessica, of course, no stranger to Winter Papers over the years. Her poetry has featured in many editions. It's featured in many other places as well. Some Hauntings, however, is her first essay. Uh, the first essay of Jessica's to feature in the collection, the story of the home her family moved to and explores the psychological reasons that shape scary moments. To tell us more about her contribution, we are joined by Jessica Trainer, and Brian Layden is currently working up his, his defence for his statement about the landscape of North Sligo. Um, I suppose it did strike me, Jessica, um, it's not your first essay, but it's your first essay in, the, in, in Winter Papers. It did strike me that home was a topic that came back in many, very many of the pieces in, in Winter Papers. And not only that, a kind of a nostalgia for home or places that kind of meant something in the past, which is precisely what you're dealing with in, 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 your, in your piece. Yeah, well, we all got a lot of home, I think, over, mm. over the lockdown. So it was definitely a time to kind of, uh, I suppose, explore the spaces that we were in and also revisit those other spaces. Um, and, and I think there's something about our childhood homes that kind of uh, shape our psyche to a certain extent, um, to the extent that I think a lot of us, even when we dream, often will dream ourselves back in those childhood homes and I was just fascinated by that having made a move a house move and just gotten in by the skin of our teeth before lockdown started so we suddenly found ourselves as a kind of a, a young family uh, you know with young kids inhabiting this space and shaping it ourselves. And, and in a whole new area where you, yeah, you, you yeah, didn't know anybody yeah. around you and you no. couldn't even say hello to them. No, no, we couldn't. Well, we did, but from a distance. Yeah, across the hedge type <laughs> yeah. of thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so we had a lot of time to kind of inhabit that space and think about, I suppose, think back to our own childhoods, myself and my partner and our own impressions of home from then. And there was one specific home uh, or house that you lived in as a, as a child that came back again and again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we moved down from the hills of Tala to Rasgar, which is the pinnacle of my family's respectability. Like we <laughs> often say, you know, with fondness, we're never going back to Rasgar. <laughs> They'll never let us back in. Um, and it was, it was like... It was like moving, it was moving from one kind of social class to another, but it was also like moving back in time because it was this old house um, on a square that James Joyce had lived in. And when we moved into it, it was completely derelict to the extent that there was kind of uh, rotten food left on the tables where the landlord had booted everybody out of this kind of pre-63 house. Um, and it was just falling apart and we never had the money to do anything with it apart from patch jobs mm. to the extent that for the first year we lived in one room of it because, you know, there was the only room where there wasn't water coming in through the ceilings and everything like that. But it kind of became the psychic stage, I think, for, for a lot of my childhood stuff and, and, and also the end of my parents' marriage. And there was also, there's also a sense in it you talk about um, quite certainly that this was one of these houses that was going to swallow money left, right and centre. And oh, as it yeah. swallowed the money, nothing got fixed as it, as it did that. So the financial, uh, you may have moved into the wonderful respectability of Rathgar, but the financial challenges were, were 
quite tough. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we were selling off marble fireplaces to kind of make the mortgage payments. And I think anybody who remembers moving in the 1980s will remember, you know, it may be great for my generation to say, oh, everything was so cheap then. But there was also like bridging finance at 20% and, you know, crazy interest rates and no jobs. So, you know, there was that kind of, that, that money pit was a real... Yeah, and there was real thrift on the part of your, your parents in terms of shopping and all the rest oh, of it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, we like, and it's funny, you go to Camden Street now and it's such a different place but that was where we would go to buy all of our fruit and veg from the stall holders there we would go to the bull ring on Mead Street to get if we needed curtains or duvets or towels or anything like that and to the markets there where you could get stuff that had fallen off the back of trucks and you know but that that's a Dublin that even in between the kind of late 80s and now has mm. kind of vanished yeah and you might burn your hand if you went to lift it I would say it was, <laughs> some of it was a little so bit hot, hot to, say, <laughs> to say the very least Brian um it, it, obviously, in, in the case of Jessica there, we're talking about a great nostalgic kind of feel for, in some ways, an older Dublin. And certainly the, the house, as we hear more about, uh, has a real sense of memories for, for Jessica as well. You bring us to, we better get over the inhospitable landscape of, of North Sligo. You bring us to the edge of the island, effectively, and the Atlantic Ocean whacking in on top of you. So, you know, reasonable, reasonable enough to talk about inhospitability. But why, why the particular spot and where the particular spot, I suppose? Yeah, that's precisely <coughs> it, Sean. And as Kevin would have known, too, when he was responding to this piece, we, there was descriptions of the waves coming in there mm. in that part of North Sligo. It's very, very windy, as one local fisherman said to me, the devil must be stuck around here. Sometimes it gets so windy. And of course, Met Aaron would occasionally issue these forecasts to say that there will be outrageously high seas, spectacular waves. Uh, you've never seen anything like this. Please stay away. And of course, there would be parades of people out to the coast then to look yeah. at, the, at this, and me included. And I would walk up to the end of our road and watch these waves building, the, the push of the water coming in. And there's a kind of primordial fear you can experience then when you know it's on the brink of inundation. And it has, and that's the inhospitable part of it. And then the sea calms down and you get these days where this pell-mell lark song above your head. And you're continually trying to make terms with this kind of dis mm. obliteration on one side and accumulation on another. So that's really yeah, it. Yeah, I, I suppose in, in, in some ways, um, I, you know, it sounds so romantic on the edge of the ocean and the waves crashing in on top of you and then the sound of a beautiful bird song the next day and you say, oh, yeah, well, yeah so that's the perfect place for a writer to, to go and live his or her life and, you know, look out the window, ponder and then jot down a sentence sure it's a great it's a great version of what a writer's life is and you had two great writers living in that in that particular area not quite in the way I've just described I'm guessing though I, I did we were very lucky and I mean you had the painter Sean McSweeney out there and you have Dermot Delargy is out there and you have Mary Branley another poet out there so you had, mm. a, you had a lot of people drawn to this very particular headland this uh, uh, peninsular the insular place of the pen as somebody said to it <laughs> and the thing about the peninsular place is that it's an extremity and it's also a marginal place and why it during the COVID lockdown which Kevin was talking about and you were mm. talking about when this shadow fell on everybody we all had this sequesterment in place sometimes only within five kilometres of home and I started writing 
about my locality and learning it. And it was Kevin actually who said to me way back when we moved, like Jessica was moving house and moving to a new place, he said, you really need to be about 10 years in a landscape, don't you, before you begin to feel qualified to say anything about it. And that, we were about 14 years there, so I began these essays, the heron and the hare included, yeah. uh, which would look at why were writers drawn to such a peripheral, marginal place, and what was it about it that sustained them and inspired them, and, and me as well. And uh, Kevin, turning to you, you're not quite at the, the isolation point of uh, somewhere like uh, Brian describes in, in his essay in, in Balanafad, you're not that far away from uh, folk and civilization. But in the piece that you have in Winter Papers, you bring it to the absolute extreme. You bring a chap onto a lighthouse. Did you spend time on a lighthouse as research for that work? Well, this is this is very much a piece of auto-fiction from my own life experience, Sean. I um, I had I had a, a job out in this year for a few years. I was uh, looking after the lighthouse out there, so this was just very much uh, dealing with my own emotions and memories of the time. Um, quite mixed up memories in some ways. I, I I wouldn't call it nostalgic, but there's some kind of yearning in there. There certainly is. Actually. It, it, in truth, this piece began as a, a collaboration with, with Louise Manifold, my friend, the, the visual artist, uh, during Galway 2020. I went out to the lighthouse with Louise and started kind of improvise a monologue, which Louise recorded, and made some images. And then we, we held a little exhibition of this. It, it, stop it, you I'm going to stop you there because we're getting an awful lot of uh, loop around. There's something happening with the sound. So we'll see if we can sort that. And if we can, I'll come back to you. Let me, let me go back to, uh, to Jessica uh, at this point. Jessica, so maybe you would explain, you're going to read a little section uh, from, from the piece, your piece for us. You're a, an 11-year-old girl. Now, when are these memories coming back to you about the specifics? Are you going to tell me about the young boy? Am I going to get yes, that section? Yeah, yes, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your, best, your best friend, Alexander. My, my best friend, Alexander. A year or so before my parents separated, they took me out for dinner. On this particular night, I must have started talking about the big back bedroom where I still slept, how I could never feel comfortable there, how I was always a little afraid. My mum started to tell me a story she'd never told me before. It was about my imaginary friend, Alexander. He'd have been two or three, do you remember him at all? I thought back. There were other names and faces that came and went from my preschool days, but no Alexander. But I don't know if you'd call him a friend, really, she continued. You used to come down from your room in the morning and say that he'd been mean to you, that he said you were in his room. Jesus Christ, mum. I thought it was someone in your nursery. Alexander was such a specific name, but there was no Alexander. Then your mother went to a priest, my dad said, not without a note of scepticism. Well, I was worried. You kept having nightmares, waking up screaming and telling me Alexander wanted you out of his room. The room I sleep in now? The image of a floating sponge came back to me, its strange jerking motion in the dark. I walked down to the priest's house. He was a nice man, very calm. There was no nonsense about exorcisms or anything like that. But he made a good suggestion. He said you were probably just stressed by the move. He said we should take you around, have you touch the walls, touch the ceiling and say, these are Jessica's walls, this is Jessica's floor. And did you? We did. You came down the next morning and said that Alexander was gone, said my dad. And that was the end of that. My mum shot him a look. Well, my dad rolled his eyes. We did find something, she continued, when we were pulling out the built-in wardrobes. 
someone had scratched the name Alexander into the plaster in childlike writing. <laughs> That's Jessica Trainer reading from her essay, <laughs> Some Hauntings. Now, don't go spoiling anything yeah. on any of us, but you hadn't, as an 11-year-old, scraped Alexander's name on the wall. This no. was there. No, this was there. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was. And even my dad ad- admits that they did They did find that, it. That, now that frightened the living daylights out of you. And you're not saying, thank you very much for taking us out of that house, Mum and Dad. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we were probably in the house for another couple of years and I had to sleep in that room. And I never slept well in that room. And there was another little tiny box room in the house I'd moved down to when I could, but it was always rented out to students. Um, as part of our many money-making What schemes. names were on that wall? <laughs> there were none. There were none. There, were none. there wasn't, wasn't even an atmosphere in that room. But this big back bedroom, it, it definitely had that. And my dad would be allergic now to anything supernatural yeah. or anything like that. He just wouldn't. He, he would have no truck with it at all. Um, I mean, my mum definitely comes from a family where we don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. But, um, but no, this was something they both agreed happened. Uh, and there's a touch, I don't know if the supernatural is quite the right thing to talk about, uh, Brian, but I guess the fact that you have the heron and the hare together in, yeah. in your essay title kind of tells us something about it. And it's not a direct reference to Leland Bardwell and, and, uh, and Dermot, Dermot yeah. Eady. It's not a direct reference in that respect. But what is the kind of, su- if you like, the supernatural aspect of that? Well, it's interesting. You were mentioning my press there, Lepus or Lepus Print. That's the mm-hmm. Latin for the hare. There were always hares in the field that we moved to at the time. And I like the idea of the hare because it's a creature that's both very lucky and unlucky at the mm. same time. So it seemed perfect for publishing. And uh, the heron and the hare, I don't give too much away in the title, yeah. but act- actually, I will tell you where it comes from. It was one of those sweet, calm days you get, as well as the barbaric storms. And I was at the back of the house at Dermot's looking at the fossil record there in the Serpent Rock. And there's 300 million year old fossils there from Mm. embedded in the rock. And with that, um, there was a heron out on the edge of the rocks and a hare moved out across the rocks and sat down beside the heron. And the two of them looked out to sea. And Dermot turned to me and said, well, you know why the heron sits with the hare? And straight away answered, because it's enchanted. Mm. And it's that enchantment as well that I was trying to capture here with, with, with this Will piece. you read a little section for us, Brian? I will, yeah. I'm in denial about, uh, I need more light, not glasses, but I do need glasses, actually. <laughs> um, this is where Dermot and Leland are in Ballyconnell and Maharao, and they'd prioritised their art in the face of uncertainty and the contingency that everything they valued could be overturned on a whim by one of those storms. Leland had fashioned a cosy home by the sea that expressed her hospitable nature and her free-spiritedness. For Dermot, the very marginality of this place graced him with a productive routine, with time to write, time to take out the ashes and light the fire in the open hearth, time to stand under the evergreen O'Leria hedge at his gable, overlooking the sea, time for a six o'clock visit to nearby Ellen's pub for a game of pool and a perno on blackcurrant, and then back by eight to deploy the box of spices in his galley-sized kitchen and make dinner, open a bottle of Rioja and welcome Helen home from work, and then in the candlelight, 
enthroned in his green armchair by the open fire, an ashtray, lighter, ten pack of Carl's cigarettes on the armrest. He'd sift through a ringed binder with separate clear plastic envelopes for the day's haul of poems. Brian Layden reading from the, uh, the, the, the reading from his essay. I, the, the title has gone right. The heron and the hare. The heron and the hare. Thanks very much, Brian, and also to Jessica Trainer. We'll be back with more after this break. And just a few minutes left of our arena special on the launch of Winter Papers 8. And before we let you go, Kevin Barry, um, you're, you're back in action now and we can hear you properly, I think. Uh, do you think the isolation, we didn't get to talk too much about your own isolation on that lighthouse, will the isolation that you're currently in feed into something? Would it happen that quickly? Uh, no, I, t- I think it takes a, a while for this stuff to kind of sit in the, in, the, in the oily places of your subconscious before it forms into work, Sean. You know, it takes, takes a little while to filter through. And uh, Winter Papers 8, when do you start thinking about, or 9, when do you start thinking about that? We kind of, we've fallen into a real kind of, I guess a kind of a, a kind of a circular routine with it now. So not long after Christmas, we kind of start to think about, um, think about the summer when we, when the stuff is going to start coming in and what we want to see coming. And uh, it's, it's gone into a very, very kind of a nice rhythm. Well, listen, I hope that both yourself and Olivia continue to be uh, well and without any difficult symptoms and that you can get out and about very soon. Uh, great to have you with us this evening, uh, Kevin. And that is almost it from this arena special, marking the publication of Winter Papers 8, co-edited by Kevin Barry and Olivia Smith, published by Curlew Editions. Thanks to Kevin and Olivia and to our guests, Dragona Jurisic, Brian Layden, Belinda McKeown and Jessica Trina. Thanks also to Benedict Shepherd conley uh, Domitil Garmi and Simon O'Connor here at Molly on sound this evening for RTE Gar Duffy and Kieran Cullen here at Molly and Harry Buckless back at base our broadcast coordinator was Amandine Passo-Devine and tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGowan final thanks goes to our musicians Anna Mika and Ryan Hargadon big gig on Friday night Anna I know you're heading out on tour around England and Europe people won't get to that but you're in Whelan's this coming Friday evening. So if you want to get uh, more from Anna, you can go there. The current album is called Theatre and that uh, Whelan's Friday, November the 25th uh, is the night of the gig. Right now, she'll take us out with another track. This is Coraline. Anamika there ending tonight's arena live from the Museum of Literature Ireland on St. Stephen's Green in Dublin.